Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And this is John Simon. And today we're talking about written discovery. John, both of us are adjuncts, and I teach pretrial uh, litigation at St. Louis University. And it's revealing when you bring up written discovery to the students. I, I bet you've had the same response in your classes. And so the instinct is that, okay, so I ask this question, I send it out, and then I'll get an answer. It's not that simple, though. No, and I would say, starting out, one of the suggestions I would have is recognize that there are limitations to your written discovery, primarily because most of them are going to be objected to, whether it's rightfully so or not. But I think more importantly, the written discovery is being answered by the lawyers, not the lay people or the witnesses. So you're going to really not get the same information you would get, say, if you were asking for it in a deposition. Now, on the flip side, I think two very good things, uh, you know, to use written discovery for are the identity of, of witnesses and the identity of documents. And that's really where the written discovery is very, very helpful because it allows you to start the discovery process. And what we can talk about timing of it, too, Written discovery typically is done at the very beginning of the process. The lawsuit is filed, immediately send out a set of interrogatories, a set of requests for production of documents. It's finding out what documents exist, what are they called, where are they, who has custody of them, and also who are the players, who are the witnesses, who are people we're going to need to talk to, the folks that we're going to need to get depositions from. Sometimes you ask 30 interrogatories you get 30 objections, or actually all of them are objected to in multiple ways. And there's moments where you look at it and you go, these things are useless. Not really, because you do get the identities of witnesses and you get the identities of documents. Those are really important things to get the ball rolling. But a lot of these well-crafted interrogatories get nothing, get nothing at all. I've had specific examples and experiences in the courtroom where we've asked for certain information and there's an objection. And then subject to the objection, we're providing A. And then at court, we see B and C and D. And we're up at the sidebar saying, well, judge, and this happened to me early on in my career, well, Your Honor, we asked for those things, and they only gave us A. And now they got B, C, and D. We should have gotten B, C, and D. And their response, believe it or not, was, well, we objected to that, and we didn't waive our objection. So the lesson learned from that is when you get an objection to your discovery request, your interrogatory request for production, get a court order on it. Put it in a court order. Once they raise an objection, I would not be satisfied with anything less than a court order saying whether or not they must respond to it or not. Anything short of that, you really don't know what you're getting. They got an objection, and subject to that, we'll give you what? You can give us something. You're going to give us part of it. You can give us half of it. But think about how much time, energy, effort, and thought went into your discovery requests. I mean, it, it should have. If it, if it didn't, then there's a whole other issue that we need, to, <laughs> we need to talk about. But you've thought about the case. You're thinking about the defenses, the elements, what kind of information that you need to prove your case. And you should have spent quite a bit of time formulating these discovery requests. And really, the discovery requests should be generally sort of a blueprint for what you need to prove in your case. And so you've given it a lot of thought, you put a lot of work and effort into it, 
And then you get an objection and they don't provide you with 90% of the information that's discoverable and information that you should have gotten. Well, what do you do? If you don't get that up to court and get it ruled on and get a court order compelling them to produce that information, all of that work you've done formulating and sending out the discovery is for nothing. That's right. So when you see that objection and an XYZ objection, subject to and without waiving that objection, defendant states, whatever, that means, in my mind, we are not giving you a complete answer. That's what it should mean to you. Right. And what does that tell you? tells you that they're not withdrawing the objection and not giving you all the information that's responsive to your request or your interrogatory. So I argue it. I argue it and put it in a court order. If they're stipulating to provide you with information, that order should say, objection withdrawn. If it's not withdrawn, I want a ruling on it. I want the court to overrule the objection so we know what we're getting. And it, it just it is amazing how the cases we handle are fairly involved, a lot of, you know, a lot of documents, a lot of witnesses. And I think more often than not, it's sort of perceived as a game of trying to hide stuff. Okay, and what we do as lawyers shouldn't be about trying to hide stuff. It should be about let's put all the information out on the table, the facts and the documents, and then we'll, we'll sort that out and, and then be able to present it at trial. You have to enforce your client's rights. If they're objecting, and they will, get rid of the objection. The next step after that, I have had cases, and this doesn't happen at nearly as often, but where the court orders the defendant to produce the information and you still don't get it or you still don't get all of it. What usually happens with me is I'll send out the discovery. They'll object. We'll call it up. We get the ruling. The court will order them to produce it. Always put a number of days. Always. Always put a time limit in there, 15 days, 30 days, whatever. None of this discovery continues or investigation continues or whatever. You either have it or you don't. But then as we start deposing witnesses, without exception, you're going to say, oh, well, that exists also? Have you seen that in these documents? So it is a battle. It is a battle from beginning to end. What I like to describe discovery in cases is it really needs to be comprehensive, and that's why your case is made. It's really made through discovery. There's nothing more important than discovery in your case. That stuff, as you mentioned, does spill out in depositions where you bring a custodian of records in or maybe a, an IT person, and you ask a lot of these questions about, well, where would I find this information? Where would I find that? Who has this? Who's the right person to talk to? And quite often, you know, I notice the opposing attorney is taking a lot of notes looking like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Well, that was your client, and we, maybe that's what they need to do is to sit down and cross-examine the people that they work with to make sure they're actually thoroughly looking at everything that needs to be looked at. In terms of timing, as we said, we send out the request for production, the interrogatories initially, and what I'd like to do is follow up with a corporate rep deposition and do exactly what you've said, and that is, tell me about the process. Tell me about what's done. Tell me who is involved in it. Are there any policies and procedures that relate to this? What are they? Are they in writing? Who keeps them? And so through the course of that deposition, really you're, you're getting more names and you're getting the identity of documents. I would describe it as the relentless pursuit of documents. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. You just really need to be relentless and you need to keep digging and not give up and be persistent and not be discouraged. And we've had cases where we've gone to court three, four times on the same issue 
until we finally, to this day, I don't know that we got everything, but we got a whole lot more than we did after the first go-round. Product liability cases, I do a lot of those, even medical malpractice cases. We've had cases where we've tried the case, a medical malpractice case, for two weeks, and the last day of trial, we find out that the defendant didn't produce all the medical records, despite requests for production that were answered saying, here are all of the records, and they were bait stamped. So again, I don't know. You really need to be persistent and relentless and follow up. Yeah, it's an unending, nonstop pursuit of documents. And on our side, we have to assume that we're not getting everything. We just have to. And it's not a pleasant thought. And I'd like to be back in the good old days as I remember them. Maybe they weren't so good, but that's how I remember it. We have to assume that we're not getting everything because you'll pay the price at trial if you don't. If I can go back one step, when you're drafting the interrogatories, I think it's critically important to not just make these so that you understand it, but to make sure that you are writing such a clean interrogatory that anybody could understand it. And it's it's intuitive, it's immediate. The wording of the request, the wording of the interrogatory is so important. What I like to do is ask for what I'm looking for specifically as well as broadly. Ask it both ways. But you do need to be careful about how you phrase it, not just for clarity, but for the substance of what you're asking for, too. And I'll give you an example of where I messed up, and I ended up catching it through another avenue, but it was a faulty furnace in an RV, and our client's husband got carbon monoxide poisoning and ended up dying, you know, terrible, sad case. And we were interested in whether or not this had happened before with other models of the furnace. And one of the requests that I had written, it was an interrogatory maybe, or request, or both, said any prior incidents, similar incidents where anybody was exposed to carbon monoxide during the time that this model was manufactured or sold. And without realizing it, it was a kind of case where as the product got older and wore down a little bit, the defect became more obvious and it didn't start malfunctioning until it'd been on the road a little while. Well, what happened was the time that they had manufactured and sold it was a very short period of time, like five or six years, but they had continued to get complaints about a dozen or more in the 10 years after that. And so what I got was one or two and I'd missed a bunch of them. And it was based on how I had worded the request. And that's why I was saying before, I try to be specific, but also broad so you don't miss anything. And the end of that story was I did some outside research and went online and found a suit that had been filed in another state, talked to that lawyer, and had gotten all of the certified copies of the other complaints that had been made. And so we we ended up having those materials at trial. But the reality was that the way I had phrased my written discovery, I hadn't hadn't asked for all of them. It was a little bit too narrow. So it's good to cover it each way, cover it a number of ways, but we're recording this in December of 2019. About four months ago, a new set of discovery rules went into effect in Missouri, now limiting the number of interrogatories you can ask to 25 unless you have leave of court. John, you handle a lot of complex cases where the the plaintiff doesn't have a lot of information. The defendant has most of it. I'm just wondering if you want to comment on how this might affect your practice. Most of our cases have 30 witnesses, 25 witnesses, hundreds of thousands of documents, The idea that we're going to get all of the written discovery that we need with 25 interrogatories is just just not happening. I mean, not for the type of cases that we handle. 
and for instance, there's also a limit on the request for admissions, which I think is counterproductive. Requests for admissions eliminate issues. A good request set of requests for admissions can eliminate taking a dozen depositions. It can eliminate tons of time at trial, as you know. And so the request for admissions, the written discovery is by nature, by what they are, they're designed to make the case to shorten it, to make the discovery less, to make it more efficient. If you got a set of requests for admissions, all you're doing is eliminating factual issues in the case. Now, there's a provision in there, I believe, where you can ask the court to give you leave to, to have more of them. But I think requests for admissions are the most useful and underutilized discovery tool in the box, without question. What I try to do is put together a set or sets of requests for admission throughout the course of the case, and I put them in a format where it's the same way that I want to tell the story at trial. Are you the defendant? Are you properly named? Was the driver of the truck your employee at the time? Did the accident happen on this date? Was your person behind the wheel? Did the front of the truck hit the rear of the vehicle? And so what I like to do in the beginning of the case, right out of the chute, first thing is to get this comprehensive, organized set of requests for admissions and stand in front of the jury and say, ladies and gentlemen, before we begin, we want to present to you a set of requests for admissions. These are facts that everybody in the courtroom has agreed to. The folks at the other table in here, we all agree to this set of facts and then just read them. And what that does and has done in cases, it knocks out days of testimony, days of bringing in witnesses arguing about what the facts are because we have a set of facts. You know, you're not going to agree to all the facts, but there is at least a core set of facts both sides agree to. That shortens the trial. That lessens the discovery. So I think limiting the number of requests for production, whatever the goal is, it sure wasn't making things more efficient and cutting down on discovery. And let's talk about why that's important. So maybe somebody hearing this might think, well, John Simon doesn't want to have an eight-day trial. He wants to have a four-day trial. It's not about you. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the jury. So these people are all called to service, and they can sit there for eight days, or they can have the the issues honed down by the parties through requests for admissions. And now it's a four-day trial. What does that mean to you when the jury doesn't have to sit there that extra? Well, you know what? It's good for everybody. It's good for the court. It's good for the jury. But what it does, too, is not just time-wise, but it simplifies the case. For instance, if you're not arguing about this set of facts or what the patient's temperature was at that time or what time the nurse visited them and what medications were given, all of these things can be put into a request for admission, set of requests for admissions, and eliminated. So instead of having 65 things that the jury needs to decide at trial, it might be four. It really narrows the case down and makes the case more manageable and more presentable so that you're not arguing and fighting about what the facts are in the case. Let's quantify this. Let's assume you have a complex products liability case or a malpractice case with multiple defendants. How many requests for admissions would you typically send out to try to simplify your case? Typically, we would send over 100 per defendant over the course of the case. And at different times, too, we'll send out an initial set for the basic information about the defendant. Have we named them properly? What is their relationship to the product, for instance? Did they sell it? Did they design it? Did they manufacture it? Those are all issues on the verdict form. Those are issues that the jury needs to decide in a product liability case. And most often, they're not at issue, but you still need to present evidence on them. You know, that's another good point. Even if the set of facts aren't being disputed, you still need to present evidence. So the question is, Do you want to call a witness to talk about that at trial 
and swear them in and put them on the stand and have them talk about, we manufactured it, we designed it, or do you want to put it in a set of requests for admissions so that it can be read to the jury in a minute and a half at the beginning of the case and no, neither side needs to deal with it? These discovery tools are designed to make the trial more fair, more just, but also shorter, more efficient. Cutting down on the discovery requests, I really don't see how that The only thing I see it doing is is lengthening the discovery process, lengthening the trial, making the trial a little bit less focused, and maybe, at worst, preventing one side or the other from not getting the information they need to have a fair shot at trial. One of the other main reasons for discovery existing at all was to help each side better see the case through their opponent's eyes. It helps cases settle. So if you can have a request for admissions that really narrows down the issues, you can talk about it at mediation or or just settle the case on your own much more easily. So it seems like a counterproductive change in the law. I know that you do get a chance to go talk to the judge and ask Lee, but this is going to be another step for most of us to have to go see the judge and and show what we want to do as far as requests for admissions. It's It's going to add time and more effort to getting done what we used to do. I mean, for instance, if you're dealing with an automotive product case, whether it's a roof crush or an airbag, you've got multiple different issues in the design, in the manufacturing, in the testing, in the post-sale information about other similar incidents. Here's another great example of request for admissions. We will work to get information about other incidents involving a particular product. And as you know, that's relevant, it's admissible, provided you make the proper foundation. And in some cases, in one case, for instance, we had over 100 other incidents. Well, the question is, how best do you get the factual basis of those other incidents into evidence before the jury? Well, there are different ways to do it. You could run around the country and take depositions of each of the plaintiffs or individuals involved in those other incidents, which would take months or years and be an astronomical expense to both sides in the case, or you could get a set of requests for admissions, attach the documentation, the police reports, and we do this all the time. So we may have a set of requests for admissions that's 150 or 200, but they're merely designed to admit to the underlying facts of each of the other incidents that we've identified so that at trial we can argue about whether they come in or not. The discovery narrows the issues for trial. The discovery makes the case shorter, not longer. The discovery allows each side to get a better, clearer view of what the other side's case is about. That's the whole process. I mean, you're learning as you're going through this discovery, limiting the discovery just isn't the way to do it. And here's the other thing, too. Uh, If there is some perceived abuse in the discovery process, we already had a mechanism in place to deal with that. You go up to the court and you bring it to the court's attention, the court can rule on it. You get a protective order. So I'm not sure why, The new rule was passed, but I can tell you in all my years of practice and based on the type of cases that I handle, it has nothing to do with making things more efficient or spending less time at at trial. On a prior episode, we we mentioned that 12% of the Missouri lawmakers are lawyers, and it it occurs to me this may be something that if there were actual trial lawyers in the legislature, that they would appreciate that this attempt— it seems maybe at first glance by someone who doesn't try cases, here, we're going to simplify these trials. We'll limit things to 25 of each discovery type and therefore simplify things, but it, it doesn't. It's going to make it the opposite. 
I agree 100%. Maybe we can turn to request for production. One thing that I struggle with sometimes is you ask a request for production and you get a, I call it the dump, you get a pile of stuff. It's not sorted per request for production. It's disorganized and it's basically good luck looking through all the stuff. So there is a rule that it's supposed to be produced in accordance with the way it's kept in the normal course of business or piece by piece, according to your request for production. But that often doesn't happen. And I'm wondering if you you have this problem too, where you get a, a massive pile of documents and it's Good luck trying to find what you're after. Yeah, this is a 5801 request for production, and I think this is the new version, right. effective August 28, 2019. And subparagraph 4 talks about method of production, and it's a party who produces documents for inspection shall produce them as they are kept in the usual course of business, so long as this form is reasonably usable by the requesting party or shall organize and label them to correspond with the categories in the request. That's the provision that's very helpful and that is you're requesting them by category specifically, and that's how they need to produce them. If they're not already stored that way, which they probably are, you really shouldn't be satisfied with somebody just dumping. And now electronically, as you know, I mean, you get 10,000, 20,000 documents. We had an automotive product case a year or two ago, two years ago, and we talk about a document dump. It was four or 500,000 pages of documents, and it had documents that were produced in a bunch of other cases that had nothing to do with our case. But again, we had to do what we needed to do to go through them and sort them out. And it ended up probably had about 200 pages of documents that were actually relevant to the (laughs) issues that were involved in our case. But in any event, you need to keep that in mind, no question. And I think the other thing too that's important, whenever documents are produced, especially with medical records, because I think in in non-medical record cases, this happens more often than not, most of the time, make sure they're identified, bait stamped. We have a policy in our office, if we receive a set of documents in litigation from whoever, wherever, however, and they're not bait stamped, we send them back. We got to get them bait stamped. So that way at trial later, there's not an argument about whether or not it's been produced. Again, you know, story, this was many, many years ago. I had a a case in federal court in Boston. It was a six-week trial, a lot of documents. And I wasn't involved in the workup. I wasn't that much involved. My brother tried the case, and I was there second chairing him. Throughout the trial, we would introduce a document, and the other attorney would stand up and say, Object, Your Honor, we've not seen that document before. And it was two businesses, plaintiff and defendant. It was a commercial litigation case with a lot of documents. And so the judge finally became frustrated and said, I don't know how you expect me to resolve that issue. And again, from the get-go, both sides, if you're accepting documents from a party— even if it's a non-party, you want them bait stamped. So you don't want there to be any question about what document was produced and what was not produced. That way, if somebody comes up in trial and say, well, that's the first time we're seeing that, you can say, well, not really. It's Bates number 1462 that we produced on, on such and such a date. But you got to be organized. I mean, most of the time, I think nowadays, more so than a few years back, are many more documents. The cases are a little more involved. And so you really need to do a good job of organizing and identifying the documents when you get them. I'm curious uh, on some of your complex cases, products liability, medical malpractice, you in discovery received, like you say, sometimes hundreds of thousands of documents. And I don't know what you might call it. I call it my hot docs folder, the ones that really matter, the ones that I take into court. And it's a small, small fraction of the, the documents that I've seen throughout the case. 
how many pages do you think it boils down to typically that matter when you go into court? Well, you know what? It's, that's a great question. Even if it's 100 documents, that's way too many. I like to boil it down to 10 or 15 key documents. I don't care how complex the case is. Pick your best 15, 12, 10 documents and go with them. I've mentioned this before. We have a, a rule or saying a saying at the firm, and that is it's a 24-hour rule. What is the jury going to remember about that witness 24 hours later? And ask yourself that. And sometimes a witness is on a stand four hours, two hours, eight hours, 15 minutes, whatever it is. One day passes, and they're going to remember one thing, maybe two, probably not three about that witness, especially if they're sitting through a three-week trial or two-week trial. So you want to take the best thing you have and really bang away at it. Spend half of your time on the, on the best thing you have versus trying to go through 42 different things that may not have as much impact. And unfortunately, there's no way to get to that 15 without getting to 10,000 or 100,000. Got to review no them. You got to review them. So no tell question. Me, tell yeah. me a little bit about your process. How do you have staff who takes it first, swipe at these things, and how do they get to it? And then how do you eventually get to what you get to? I'll give you an example. We had a, a medical malpractice case that had probably about 20,000 pages of medical records, 20, 25,000. And it was the type of case where we needed to know what was in them and go through them. And so what I did is we have some really terrific law clerks here. And we have a big conference room, set them out on the table by provider. And I had each of maybe four or five law clerks over the course of a week or so go through. And I was very specific in terms of what we were looking for. And they would go through and color code and highlight and tab the stacks. So then I actually went through, I went through all of them, but, you know, obviously not in as much detail as the law clerks. But what I was able to do is go through a stack of maybe 2,000 pages of medical records and hone in on 10 or 15 pages that had been tabbed. And then from there, we put those together and have sort of a key set of, of records and then hone that down even further to the ones we actually want to present to the jury. But there's no substitute for going through them. You need to go through them. You'll kill your practice if you don't do it. That's the problem. There's yeah. no shortcut. You have to do it. Someone has to do it. Yeah, preparation is, is everything. It is uh, the great equalizer. It's the same thing with depositions. We'll get ready to take an expert's deposition, and we'll ask for all of the materials and documents a week in advance. And sometimes, not always, depending on who the attorney is, I can tell you based on the attorney whether it's going to happen or not, the morning of the deposition, there'll be another 1,500 pages of documents that weren't produced, even though you had asked for it two or three times. And in those circumstances, what I do is I, when I ask for the documents, I'll send in an email. I'll let them know, look, uh, we need them a week before the deposition so as not to inconvenience you or your witness. Because if they're not produced, it will delay the start of the deposition. So then they know it's coming. And when that happens, what I'll do is I'll take a break and sometimes it's a half a day, and I will spend my time going through those documents, organizing those documents, marking them, and that deposition is not starting until I've had an opportunity to do that. And there's good reason to do that now because as of August, there's a new rule limiting a deposition to seven hours in, this, in the state of Missouri yes. as it is in yep. the federal court. So you have to make these depositions efficient. Most of my depositions, I can't recall too many that have gone beyond seven hours, but it is. It's all about efficiency and being organized. And being persistent, following up, if you're representing the plaintiff in a medical malpractice case, if you're representing the plaintiff in a product liability case, at the very beginning of that case, you have 1% of the information, the other side's got 99%. Their job, they perceive sometimes, is to keep you from getting it, 
and your job is to get it. And that's what you need to do. You need to work really, really hard and be persistent and unrelenting in terms of, of getting the information that you need. One other issue that I want to mention before we stop is, you know, when you're in court arguing for the discovery, you're there arguing about the defendant's objection to the interrogatory, the request for production, you need to remember the rule about the scope of discovery. It doesn't need to be relevant. It just needs to lead to the admissibility, or it needs to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. And I've got here in front of me, it's 5601, general provisions regarding discovery, and it says scope of discovery, and it says parties may obtain discovery regarding any matter, not privilege, that's relevant to the subject matter involved in the pending action, whether it relates to the claim or defense of the party seeking discovery or to the claim or defense of any other party. And this is the part really I'm getting to. When you're arguing objections to discovery, you need to take a look at Rule 5601B, subsection 1, uh, B, subparagraph 1. And it says it's not ground for objection that the information sought will be inadmissible at trial if the information sought appears reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. I tell all the young lawyers here, and they're the ones arguing most of the discovery motions, the first thing out of your mouth when you're in court and you're arguing of an objection to your discovery, you need to say it's discovery, period. This is discovery. This is not admissibility. It doesn't need to be admissible. It only needs to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. And I think half of the time that'll carry the day for you. That's right. You can ask questions that would be hearsay. You can ask about, have you ever heard anybody say something about somebody else saying something? You can extend it way beyond what comes in in trial. Another good tip that I've used over the years is when you take a deposition, when you're following up with depositions of the corporate representative or other witnesses that have been identified, ask them not just what exists in terms of documents, but ask them specifically how they're kept and, and how they're accessed. And there's a reason for that. I, I will say, okay, so all of these documents are kept on the computer, right? Yes. And you can log on and access them, correct? And you put in an entry for this and the documents appear, correct? And you push a button and you can print all of them out. Is that right? And, and they're accessible to you and you can do that at your desk with your computer and, and it take you really a matter of a minute or two to identify them and print them out. Is that correct? Yes. Because almost always we get the objection. It's vague, overly broad, and burdensome. Well, that's the typical throw-in objection when they've got nothing else to object to. And that's on every discovery request, pretty much. We object because it's vague, overly broad, and burdensome. And you can bring up the testimony and say, well, Judge, I took a deposition of this person at the company, and they said it's all on the computer, and they can push a button and it's right there. I don't know how burdensome that's going to be. So that's something you need to cover in the depositions before you argue the motion to compel that you want to establish what is there and also how it's stored and how accessible it is. And you know, I'll tell you something else too is it sounds like it's backwards a little bit, but I always try to take some depositions first before I call up the defendant's objections to the discovery. Now, you would think you'd want to have all the documents before you take the deposition. You're probably right. But what that does is when you have that information about what's there and how it's stored and what it's called, you're on a lot stronger ground because if you don't have that, you're really at the other side's mercy with whatever they tell the court. Well, judge, this is burdensome. We don't know where this is. 
we don't know how we can find it. It's in boxes in the attic or the basement, or, you know, we have it in the back of somebody's car. So I think you really need to take a deposition of a corporate rep on that issue of what documents are available, who is the custodian, how are they kept, how easy it is to access them, and, th- and that'll really help you on your motion when you're arguing it before the judge. And just think, if you don't do that, then you have two lawyers arguing about what's burdensome with no facts. We'll remove all doubt. Just mm-hmm. uh, show the stuff's easily accessible. We can get to it by pushing a button on a computer, and uh, away we go. Yeah. So we've covered three forms of written discovery. We'll be back with more on discovery, I'm sure, in future episodes. But for today, that's it. I'm Eric Veith. This is John Simon. See you next time. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.